And so what we found was there was a, approximately 50% reduction in cortisol when they wore the mouthpiece. And so across the board, we said, wow, that's pretty fascinating. And what we know with cortisol is our trend with cortisol without the mouthpiece followed the same research that's been shown in the past with this type of protocol. So it will go up and up and up and up and up and it'll stay up and it'll eventually come down, but it takes a, a bit of time. That's what our subjects did without the mouthpiece. Well, when they wore the mouthpiece, it dropped almost immediately and 50% lower than the no mouthpiece condition. Elevated cortisol levels affect muscle synth synthesis or growth, right? So if we can mitigate some of the effects of cortisol, then potentially recovery is going to be impacted in a positive way. Welcome to the Barbend Podcast, where we talk to the smartest athletes, coaches, and minds from around the world of strength. I'm your host, David Thomas Tao, and this podcast is presented by Barbend.com. Today, I'm talking to Dr. Dina Garner, professor at the Department of Health and Human Performance, director of undergraduate research, and assistant provost for research and policy at the Citadel in Charleston, South Carolina. Dr. Garner is best known in some fitness circles for her work with performance mouthpieces, including helping to develop the technology behind the Airwave mouthpiece. In today's episode, Dr. Garner joins us to talk about the complex and, in my opinion, truly fascinating mechanisms through which something as simple as a mouthpiece can improve athletic recovery and performance. And it's far from what I expected. I should take a second to mention that this podcast is sponsored by, you guessed it, Airwave, performance mouthpieces engineered for serious athletes who demand serious results. Backed by 15 years of research, the Airwave performance mouthpiece offers a more efficient way for high-intensity and endurance athletes, including lifters, to open their airways and optimize their performance. Learn more at AIRWAAV.com. Now let's get on with the show. Thanks so much for joining me today. I have to ask, you know, normally when I sit down and talk with folks, it's often, oh, how do they get into this sport or how do they get into, uh, you know, this area of nutritional science or something? Your background is a little a little different and your area of expertise is a little more specific. So I'd love to know, what do you do uh, kind of in your day-to-day -day and, and how did you get there? What educational and research journey did you have to go on? Sure. No, thank you for having me. I you know, love what Barb Ben does. You know, firstly, let me just say that. I love how your vision was to bring together all these amazing resources, nutrition and the science and resistance training. It's just phenomenal what you've done. So super excited to be here. And I know yours has been a journey too. We all have our journeys, right? That's correct. I think from reading a little bit about what you've done, those journeys that navigate all these different ways are just really interesting. And that's, I would say, mine has been the same. I started out as undergraduate in art history and design, not a science base. I had some sciences, then decided to go back and get a master's in exercise physiology at the University of South Carolina, and then went to the West Coast at Oregon State University, where I did muscle physiology, and then came back over to this side of the country in South Carolina and Medical University of South Carolina. So I uh, did a postdoc in neurology, 
So it's been such a unique, really, journey, right? And I think you would agree with me that when you have these, you're not pigeonholed into one thing. You, you learn so many different ways to think outside the box, right? And so that, I think that I know that's what's really opened these doors for me in the area that we're going to talk about today. Well, one thing I find really fascinating, too, is there is the educational sense of kind of bouncing around from one degree to the next, one institution to the next. But when you add the bi-coastal element, it adds that geographical uh, angle, and it feels like you're covering even more ground. So I appreciate you you sharing that. I have to ask, uh, now that you're settled kind of back on the eastern side of the United States, I'm a Southerner as well. What was what was the West Coast like for you? I get conflicting opinions. Well, it's been a few years. I was actually, I was just talking to a colleague about it today. Funny that you should mention that. And it's been several years since I've been out there. I love the West. I would have, we would have probably stayed out there, but we, our families are on the East Coast. So when you start having family, it's important, right? Family's important. And so being closer to them, we were the only ones out West. So we miss it greatly, but we also are very thankful to be where we are in Charleston. So, I mean, you can't, that's, there's no other, better place for, for us as far as living um, in the South to live. Yeah, it's, it's a hot spot. And for those who have never been to Charleston who are listening, uh, you're going to eat well. So prep, prep for that. Maybe be on a bulking cycle. Don't, don't plan to cut weight. I run a lot, right? <laughs> One of the reasons is because the food's so good. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm really interested, uh, to going back a little further in, in your uh, very impressive educational pedigree, go, moving from art history to exercise physiology, was there a particular moment, event, revelation that kind of convinced you to change that educational pathway? Yeah, so I went to a liberal arts college, and back then we had really a lot of different um, focus. And I would say my professors in art history and design would have agreed that I was an outlier. I was not good at what I did. But there really wasn't a path at that particular college, university, for me to pursue exercise physiology. And I wasn't introduced in, to it until I lived, I had lived in South America for a couple years after college. So after college, I was introduced to it. And I knew that my passion, um, as we all have most likely done on this, you know, listening to the podcast where we like to exercise, you know, and I like to understand the science of it. And that's when I pursued that master's degree. Now, at that time, were you inspired by or was your pursuit of that master's degree uh, influenced by your own athletic pursuits, passions, anything like that? I think I didn't know. I know I didn't know enough about it. I, I knew enough to be dangerous, right? I knew it, <laughs> it sounded exciting. And it wasn't until I really got to Oregon State that I really saw the fascinating areas you could do with research and as it relates to exercise science. So my colleagues in the other labs were doing some amazing things. And so it really opened my eyes to the opportunities. What were some of the early research projects or studies you were involved in when you were uh, when you were out there? Really looking at, we would take biopsies of people who resistance trained, you know, CrossFit type individuals and heavy resistance trainers. And we would take the biopsies and look at those under the microscope to really look at changes in the size of the muscle fiber and how that fiber responded when we put it in a, we simulated a, you know, an exercise type environment with a certain solution. So it was super um, eye-opening to get down, drill down to that level of, you know, you know, when you work out and you lift weights, your biceps, your triceps, but then to go to the very uh, most intricate level and how even 
the complexity of that was just, just fascinating to me. Were there any big surprises that stick out to you in, in doing some of that research at that, I, I want to say muscular level, but I, I guess maybe it's, it's almost the cellular level at that point. Right. It was, we call it the muscle cell. That's right. I think what surprised me, and ultimately this was my dissertation, was we did research with multiple sclerosis and translates to, we also looked at spinal cord injury. So we have people who are not using their quadriceps, their, you know, their leg muscles. And then you look at people like with MS who are fatigue easy and don't use it significantly. And then we go to the most extreme, you know, these very college age males who resist strain very heavily and how the muscle changes or differs between those three different populations. And really, what was eye-opening for me is how immediately your muscle responds, which we know, right, the science of just atrophy. So and the importance of just how even being sedentary affects muscle. We know that, but just seeing it play out in that uh, situation was just eye-opening as a young doctoral student. Well, it's interesting to see it in, in practice because we hear about muscle response to resistance training and stimulus. But I mean, you're one of the relatively few people who's, who's seeing the actual reactions of that at the, at the musculoskeletal level um, under a microscope. Absolutely fascinating. Well, what is your research focused on at this point in your career, which I think is relevant to the discussion we'll get into? Sure, sure. So as it relates to the discussion today, I started doing, doing research with mouthpieces and I was approached it was 18 years ago, almost, right? Where we had someone say, we've got some money to do some research with mouthpieces. We believe it affects an individual. So they asked me as a physiologist, you know, what do you think could be going on? And I'm very new to this field. And honestly, when you start digging, there's not a lot of research. I realized in order to be able to be confident in my response, I had to measure objective measures like cortisol, right? lactate levels, and so forth. So as it relates to muscle, we started doing research in our lab to assess how a mouthpiece during use like CrossFit or resistance training could affect one's performance as it relates to these metrics, cortisol, lactate. And so now when you asked me what was surprising, that was surprising. I assumed nothing would be, there would be no outcomes. But we did see, and we replicated it a few times, changes in cortisol, which we could talk about later, you know, why is that important to manipulate, and then lactate with resistance training and heavy resistance training, right? We did blood, saliva, metrics, measures with those, with and without the mouthpiece. And so it really opened my eyes, and I had to figure it out, right? So I started doing research, um, what other labs are doing, and in the U.S., we don't see much of that, but in the Japanese, we're doing a lot of research as it relates to clenching and the mechanism related around that. So I read that research, and then I looked at sleep apnea, the mandibular devices that could affect an individual. And I really started to figure it out from what I understood and what we found in our, our lab, potentially what's going on. Well, let's talk about some of the processes that a mouthpiece might influence. So I you know, in, in layman's terms, and, and I do not have a significant research pedigree like you, so if I'm misspeaking uh, or, or dumbing it down a little too much, please let me know. But my understanding is that a mouthpiece can change the positioning of the airway, which can influence uh, intake or the expelling of, of breath, basically. No, you said that not well. The other thing that it does is when you clench, hmm. that causes changes 
and blood flow. And the Japanese have shown changes in blood flow within the brain, cerebral blood flow. My theory is that those are what, that's what's affecting these cortisol changes that occur with mouthpiece use. So it's combined, it's really that mandibular movement and then the clenching when it, when we're talking about resistance training, right? Not with runners, but with resistance training. So it's potentially a dual mechanism that is impacting physiological response, correct? Right. So let's talk about some of the some of the results you started seeing when it comes to you were measuring cortisol levels, lactate levels by wearing a mouthpiece, which we, we've established. And thank you for walking me through that, that it can impact athletes who are strength training in two different ways. What were some of those initial responses that you were seeing that you were able to replicate that? So what we were finding, we did our first study with our football team. They did a, a one hour heavy resistance training protocol, and we were taking salivary measures at the beginning. And at several time points throughout their one hour and then 10 minutes post. So basically between sets, you're, you're taking saliva samples. They're like, oh, open up real quick. Let me just take that right between. Right. Got it. Okay. And we controlled for as best we could for things that could have interfered with salivary cortisol. For example, we, uh, we had two different times that they did it with and we randomly assigned the mouthpiece. And so we kept for cortisol. It's important that you. You do studies that it's at the same time frame because cortisol has the diurnal fluctuations. But so we did that. And we tried to control for what they ate and so forth. And so what we found was it kind of led us to the next study. But in the salivary study, we found that there was a, approximately 50% reduction in cortisol when they wore the mouthpiece. And so across the board, we said, wow, that's pretty fascinating. And what we know with cortisol is our trend with cortisol without the mouthpiece followed the same research that's been that's been shown in the past with this type of protocol. So it will go up and up and up and up and up and it'll stay up. What we saw, and it'll eventually come down, but it takes a, a bit of time. That's what our subjects did without the mouthpiece. Well, when they wore the mouthpiece, it dropped almost immediately and 50% lower than the no mouthpiece condition. And so what we can the duck from that potentially, and more studies need to be done, is elevated cortisol levels affect muscle synth- synthesis or growth, right? So if we can mitigate some of the effects of cortisol, then potentially recovery is going to be imp- impacted in a positive way. We'll get back to that in just a second. But first, a word from our sponsor, Airwave. It's not just endurance athletes who can benefit from a performance mouthpiece. CT scans show the airwave mouthpiece increases the width of your airway by up to 25% and can noticeably improve recovery markers, including during lifting sessions. Learn more at AIRWAAV.com. Now let's get back to the show. We followed up with a a study with heavy, heavy resistance training, 80%. When rep max and we found in blood levels, same thing. And we actually took it out a little bit longer than 10 minutes. And those cortisol levels continue to trend downwards, even at 20 to 30 minutes. But then we measured past 30 minutes to an hour. It seemed to, they seemed to come back together with a no mouthpiece condition. So again, it, it substantiated that there is something going on with cortisol when you do these sorts of, you know, exercises. Do you have any working theories as to which impacts cortisol levels more, modifying air intake and expelling, or cerebral blood flow? I I really think that it's the cerebral blood flow, the clenching. Because if you think about resistance training, 
you know, air intake is important, but it's a mostly it's an anaerobic system. And so if you think about the importance of, and it could be, but I mean, it could be part of it, but I think really to me, the cerebral blood flow is the most important factor that could affect it. So after some of this initial research, you're able to replicate these findings. Uh, it seems like maybe the impact was a bit more significant than you might have originally hypothesized. Mm-hmm. What happened then? You know, this started, you said, about 18 years ago. How has your research continued in this realm? And, and how has that impacted, you know, the, your relationship with the folks who first approached you about maybe doing this research? Sure. So we actually started with more of an endurance type focus. And also we did some research with the rifle team here. And again, my whole, honestly, my whole focus was to actually prove that it didn't work because I felt like this was just ooey, right? This is, we don't know, this doesn't affect your focus and your reaction time and so forth. So I did this initial research and we found some improvements. And then I had to continue to dig deep and I worked with a dentist and we did CT scans with and without it. And we could actually see that opening of your airway. We could see it, you know, with those CT scans. And when, and so then I assumed, well, if we're seeing a shift in that, we should be able to see some changes in respiratory measures. So we actually did some, you know, people would understand like VO2 max, but those respiratory exchange ratios and we saw differences with that. And then I said, well, okay. Maybe we should do some blood. So we did lactate measures and also found some differences. And finally, because my area of expertise is not, you know, I did some resistance training with muscle physiology, but I I added a colleague and we started to look at resistance training and looking at the most current protocols and how we could potentially affect and what we would measure. So it it was a progression of, okay, can't believe we found that. Um, (laughs) Why is that? And we just developed studies along the way to support what we believed was happening. I'm curious if there's anything you can share. And and if if you either don't remember or you don't want to share, that's totally fine. Curious if there um, are any particular resistance training protocols that stuck out to you on your research, because listeners of this podcast have probably tried a lot of the different, more popular protocols. So I'm just wondering if any kind of stick out in your brain. So we, we know, and I don't have a particular set, because, you know, to be honest, people are going to do what they think and they've read is the most effective. But what we do know is that there's a certain amount of time that you're going to have to be resistance training in order to see illicit effect, like a, a more pronounced effect. And so for us, found that within that hour time frame, you could do shorter. We found shorter, but the effect was not as significant. Um, but the higher one, you know, one rep maxes that are at the higher 80% or so forth, those elicit because you're really working hard, right? Your muscles and asking a lot of them. So to be honest, it, and it depends on the population, right? Of who I'm telling how to work out or what the protocol should be. But we found that with the mouthpiece, at least we had some heavy lifters and which is this audience, right? And this would absolutely have an effect on cortisol levels. So the impact, I mean, we, we talk a lot in our content and, and we kind of, we hear it a lot as strength athletes that, hey, you actually get stronger while you're recovering. You're not getting stronger during your training session. You're getting stronger during the recovery period, during sleep, based on your nutrition as your body rebuilds itself and super compensates. So what you're saying is the effect of these mouthpieces might be strongest on not necessarily helping you lift more on that day but your body's response recovery and then muscle resynthesis following those heavy reps. 
Correct. I will say we've done those studies, which they're pretty subjective, though, is increase of one rep max. So we have found improvements in the number of one rep max and in that blood study, too. But it's just it's harder for me to be as confident in that because people do say and they all tell me I'm doing I can lift more. I've, I feel my perceived level of perceived exertion is better. So I get that a lot, and I'm I'm beginning to see that that level of perceived exertion is also related to that c- cerebral blood flow, you know, and the, how that affects the central nervous system. So there's a lot to that. I mean, to feel like it's not as difficult to work out, then you can work out harder, and then the recovery is enhanced potentially by the use of it during the workout. And I usually wear mine even 10 to 15 minutes after I finish um, because that's what we had our subjects do. Mm. They didn't take it off out immediately, but they we tracked them, like I said, for that last study for an hour, and they wore it the whole hour after the workout. So we have them continue to wear it. Now, I haven't done a study without wearing it, but that may be the next next one. Well, that's a perfect segue into the next question I, want, I wanted to ask. You're basically doing my job for me here, which is what are some other uh, conditions, areas of research or, or studies in your field that you're excited about You know, in the coming years? Yes, so the cerebral blood flow is huge, and so we have the fMRI systems that really track, can track that better. And what's exciting for me is another area of my research that I do is concussion, looking at your blink reflex of your eye. And so recovery for concussion, how best can we support athletes and individuals post-concussion if we are affecting cerebral blood flow? We know that has a huge part to play in concussion recovery, and if we can enhance that, with the use of a mouthpiece during exercise, because exercise is now being prescribed at very low doses for someone who's, who is recovering from a concussion, then to me, that's just, you know, would be phenomenal. So I'm, I'm interested in that. I'm interested in the cerebral blood flow and obviously continue to expand in areas that just make the most sense to really explain what's going on. That makes a lot of sense. Are there any other areas of research that might be right outside your expertise or your particular, you know, studies that you're involved in that you just like being read up on when it comes to human physiology and exercise? The cerebral blood flow would be an area that I'd ha- I would enlist my colleagues at the medical university because, and I read up on that a lot, but my area of expertise is not cerebral blood flow. So I love reading that, those sorts of articles. And as I mentioned, the concussion literature is just continuing to expand and really provide some some insights into the trajectory of that and how it can have long-term health implications for an individual. Now, is the, uh, I guess I should say, I mean, concussions are obviously a hot topic in sports. Me, as a, as a, as a layperson, as an outside observer, it seems that there is more interest than ever in concussion science, concussion recovery, and concussion prevention. There was a whole movie about some of this, but it seems to be, you know, having really become more in our mindset or at least more at the forefront of what the public understands or knows about in the past 10 years. Is that something that in your own research you've experienced that there is more interest, more funding available, et cetera, in the past few years compared to the start of your career? Absolutely. I mean, and part of that too, right, is the initiative of the Department of Defense mm. and the monies that they're providing to support grants to understand. And so one of the grants that I was on a few years ago was really because PBI and traumatic brain injury concussion are so subjective and we don't 
know how to objectively measure it. That's when I really got involved into, well, how can you objectively measure concussion? And so the the reason is um, we've got more monies that are being given to labs to understand that topic. Are there any other areas of research that might be in your wheelhouse or, you know, even tangential to your wheelhouse where you see a lot more money coming in, a lot more interest, even from the private uh, or public sectors? Obviously, you know, some of the things you focus on in, and you've done well about is really integrating the, the nutrition and, you know, the exercise, the performance part. I mean, typically when I first started, we would just talk about one or the other. But we understand the importance of that. And then you, what's really happening and what you're seeing money for in the military that will funnel down to other, you know, other areas is the holistic and the fact of mindfulness and how all of that is really important to the health of the military, the, of the athlete. And so I think that's where you're seeing a lot more money being given to understand the full effects of mindfulness and that you know, meditation kind of focus so that we can be healthy in the mind and the body and the body being the nutrition and the physical performance. It's almost like it's one big integrated system, right? <laughs> crazy to think of. Crazy, crazy. Well, take us a little bit into your kind of your, your routine as an uh, you know, active researcher in an, an educational institution. I like to bring up, okay, so when I was a kid, I wanted to be, to be a paleontologist. No surprise there. When I stopped wanting to be a paleontologist was when someone was one of an actual paleontologist told me it's about 1% digging for bones, 99% math, which kind of disqualified me at the time. What is the breakdown uh, for you as far as, hey, this is the amount of time I'm spending doing new research and continuing to further our understanding of these subjects versus things like applying for uh, grants, getting internal review board approval, things like that? How much of, you know, wh- how, what do you split between doing what you want to do and some of the admin that goes along with that? I would say, well, I'm at a, you know, a primarily undergraduate institution. So that differs from, say, Clemson or Carolina. But my job duties currently are research, service, and teaching. And I have administrative positions. So that takes a lot of time. Next year, however, I'm going on sabbatical, which means I get a year to do my research. And I am super excited because research has been my passion. And before I took on more administrative duties on campus, I would say, you know, I loved research so much that it just consumed my time, although the teaching and service would take precedent when it needed to. But I would spend my summers doing research and, and during the school year because I love to integrate my students, right, with research. So it's hard to give a number because it really fluctuates, but I do have to meet all those three areas and then the administrative piece, which is also part of it. Yeah, I, I just like to point that out because every researcher I've been fortunate enough to talk to, uh, it often comes up after our discussions. They'll, they'll say, oh, you know, I wish I had more time to do the research I was talking about, but the grant application process is so long and things like yes. that. So I did want to pay some service to that. And for researchers who are listening who have been on the Barbin podcast before, my apologies. I didn't ask everyone this question. I think it's an important one, though. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it is. And you know, you spend a lot of time writing these grants. We just submitted one, or I just submitted one a few months ago, and it just is more than writing a paper. It's just so in, intense. And then to probably not get it, you know, it's just frustrating. But it's part of the process, right, of having to fund what you love and hopefully continue it. Does it feel like applying to college again? Yes, it does. <laughs> it's like the craziest thing. I think worse, honestly, because you feel like they're really judging 
you know, you're, what you're so passionate about. Of course, I loved, I wanted to go to college, but I didn't feel it as personal as it is now. It's very personal, right? Well, when I was applying to college, people told me, don't worry too much. You're 17 years old. So like, what are they going to judge you on? Right. But when you're an adult and this is kind of your life's work, you're like, yes. oh, this is everything I've got. I've actually worked for this. I don't have the excuse of just being kind of a snot-nosed teenager. <laughs> That's right. No excuses. That's right. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to discuss your research uh, and the very interesting trajectory your career has taken thus far. Is there anywhere in particular where people can keep up to date with the work you're doing? I just continue to we work and I don't have an up-to-date website or anything. I think if you wanted to go to the website, which focuses on some of the research with Airway, that would probably be the best location to find information about that product. But otherwise, I don't I don't have time to, um, I should, I am told I need to do social media, but it's one of those things that gets really put on the back burner, but I'll work on it maybe during my sabbatical. You're too busy trying to get people stronger. I mean, I'm I guess so. To... <laughs> I don't know. I really appreciate you taking the time. I've had a real pleasure chatting with you. Thank you so much. Thank you.